welcome to the New Stories Podcast. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It is actually a, a really interesting morning to have this conversation about civic engagement. We're exactly one week away from the presidential election day. And so what better time to hunker down and dig in? Why don't we start with introducing yourselves, your name, your role at Sandy Spring Friends School, and, and maybe anything else we may need to know about you as we dig into this topic of civic engagement, a little subjectivity for the audience. Pinky, do you want to start? Sure. Good morning, everyone. So this is my 15th year teaching, my seventh year at SSFS. I started out in the lower school teaching fifth grade for five years, and I'm now in the middle school teaching sixth, seventh humanities for two years. Before I was teaching, I worked on human rights, specifically child labor and women's rights for about five years. So civic engagement, I feel, has always been a passion of mine, especially with activism and justice and getting your voice out there and, and finding ways to activate it. Awesome. How about Mao? Hi, everyone. My name is Mao. Um, this is my second year at SSFS, uh, my 10th year in teaching overall. I've been involved in and working at several other independent schools in various roles. Currently, I serve as as an upper school history teacher and the ninth grade dean. At other schools, I've served in administration, working in DEI work as well. So civic engagement does kind of hold a special place in my heart, you know, outside the classroom as well, being involved in volunteer organizations and, you know, political activism too. Okay. And Nicole? Hello, everyone. So I am Nicole Lee. I am the interim director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Sandy Spring Friends School this year. It's a very exciting time to be here. As a DEI practitioner, I've worked in many independent schools where we're discussing civic engagement. On a personal note, prior to working um, solely in DEI, I spent about 15 years working either centrally or in the periphery of national politics, also international politics. So it's an interesting time because everyone in my personal life and my past professional life are very, very busy on this election, getting out the vote, making sure that there isn't voter suppression. So I feel like in some ways I'm I'm bridging um, the world of how we talk with our students about this and also what is happening state by state, locality by locality for this election. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have this group assembled for this very important and timely topic. And the term civic engagement is one of those independent school things where it's an old term that we feel like we just discovered, <laughs> right? It's been around us for a long time and yet it's the new buzzword. So why don't we begin with defining civic engagement. And when you think of civic engagement, what do you think of? How would you describe it to someone who's just discovering this term? For me, I think it really begins with who we are as individuals in our society, to see ourselves, our personhood, our identity, and our experiences as holding some really key information for the rest of society. So civic engagement is how we choose to express that in society. So we see civic engagement as folks of African descent in this country have led protests against police brutality, right? Really from a personal place. What have our experiences been because of our identities in this society? We see, um, I did a lot of work in Ferguson. I saw 
elderly white women who had never been to protest, bringing flowers, bringing food, showing solidarity in ways that felt right for them, expressing themselves in that way. And that was their civic engagement. So often when we, when we hear people talk about civic engagement, we hear a lot of conversation about just elections, just voting. Yet it's really any time we choose to express ourselves, often through our specific experiences, when we choose to express ourselves and ask society to affirm something, to change, or, or to frankly transform. I love that. Does anyone want to add to that? Yeah, I'll add from a teacher perspective. So the way that I teach it to my students when we're talking about civic engagement is this idea of what are you doing to work in your local and broader community, right? So whether that community be your school, Sandy Spring Friends School, your neighborhood, your county, or more broader, your city, your state, and then the country. And maybe, you know, some of the kids often talk about what about the world, which is fantastic. And then once you're starting to think about all of those aspects, if you start to see something or hear something that's not right, how are you then activating your voice to make that change? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I love that. So it, it's not synonymous with politicizing or political campaigning, right? Yeah. It's not one of those fancy terms for <laughs> pushing your agenda. There is something different to civic engagement. Absolutely. So thinking about that, where we've landed on this definition of civic engagement, which I'm in full agreement about, it's how you think about what's going on in your context, whether your context is your home or as broad as the globe, and how you make changes for the good, not just of yourself, but everyone. In that context, then, and, and even though it sounds obvious, let's dissect it, why then is it valuable to teach civic engagement in our schools? And I would say specific to the mission and vision and values of Sandy Spring Friends School. Why is civic engagement so important to us? I think that civic engagement is incredibly important to teach in schools in general, not just Sandy Spring. Um, from the perspective of, if you look at the history of education and the role of schools to begin with, one of the primary purposes of school, especially in the United States, dating back to the British colonial times, was to actually teach students to be contributing members to, to society and to teach them to be good citizens as well. That dates back to the public school education created in Massachusetts years and years ago. And I think every school around the world still has a duty to do that as well. It's not just academic in nature, but it's to really develop the next generation of global citizens too. It's interesting talking about civic engagement today because I've been actually engaging quite a bit with my juniors and seniors in U.S. history class this week with the upcoming election. And there's this misconception with them that civic engagement only entails voting. And they're like, well, I can't vote because I'm not 18 or I'm an international student, so I'm not a citizen. And it's having that discussion with them and being able to engage with them and say like, well, what else can you do though, right? It's not all about the political and voting. What else can you do? How else can you be involved in your community? Can you volunteer? Are you passionate about climate change? Are you passionate about social injustice and helping be the solution? And how do you go about actually being part of a solution to, to kind of see a better community for yourself and for others as well? I just wanted to, to add 
to that because I think Mao is making such a beautiful point and it's a really wonderful thing about Sandy Spring Friends School that there is this commitment to students being able to find their own voice. And although our education system was founded to do certain things, what we've seen over the years is this eroding of even teaching quote unquote civics in many schools. And you find everything from the quote unquote whitewashing in textbooks of what our history has been to really in some ways teaching students that they aren't empowered to do anything. So this idea that all we can do is vote, I mean, that's a societal belief thread, belief system um, that has come to bear. And it has absolutely come through our schools where students are have been disempowered and have been told their voices quote unquote, don't matter because they can't vote or because of who they are, because of their identities. And so it's refreshing and it's so important that we as a school and in other schools too, but certainly I see this at Sandy Spring Friends School, that we are talking with students about how it is absolutely more than voting, but more importantly, that their voice, their opinions, their thoughts really matter as much as frankly anyone else's, which is actually a kind of a radical perspective in our society right now. I think SSFS is starting to show that value already, not to toot our own horn, but you know, our students have done two walkouts. The fifth through 12th grade walked out for gun control. And then last year, the entire school almost, right? First through 12th grade all walked out for climate change. It was this time last year. And we all met at our perspective, like end of the sidewalk. So the middle school came out, lower school came out, the upper school came out. We met and we were led by torch and we all walked out to the front lawn and we had our signs. And I remember looking behind me and it was first graders, right? They were empowered. They were holding up their signs. They were shouting, right? And I kept thinking, wow, they're so fearless. There is no fear in this first grader right now. And there was such power in them probably seeing their senior buddies and second through up with them standing for a cause that they all believed in. And I wondered, you know, our job as teachers sometimes is to say, yes, we support you, you wanna do this, great. But it's the students that really take that lead and that charge and to see those kids out there that day was amazing. And I wonder what was that dinner conversation that night with that first grader? You know, like, oh, so amazing. And then I had the sun, the car went by and it honked versus the 12th grader who went to DC and said, I went with my peers to DC and I was standing you know, in front of the White House or the Capitol, whatever they were. So I do think that there's so much value in just letting our students lead these changes and saying, yes, we have your back. And that, that is showing civic engagement at our school and broadly as well. I love it because I'm thinking about hearing in all of your thoughts, our school's motto of let your lives speak. So in some ways our school is really founded on this idea of civic engagement. And even having looked at some of the founding documents of the school from 1960 and 1961, they were talking about building a school where students are socially engaged and morally conscious and, and eager to change the world. And so in, in many ways, our school was founded on the very concepts that we're talking about. And yet, there are some folks who would say schools are not supposed to be political sites. What do you say to that? I'll jump in and do the boring part first, the legal part. As Rodney knows, I, I'm trained as a lawyer. 
And certainly a school that's an independent school is a 501c3 nonprofit, which means that it is not to be a partisan space. I think though, besides that little point, I think that we have to deal with the reality that is presented to us. The day after the last election, I was working long-term. I was kind of embedded in a school. And I noticed something that I hadn't noticed in any other election, that so much of what we used to think about politics, like conversations we would have in politics about taxes, even about something like healthcare that does impact people's lives, but something a, a little bit more removed, if you will, we're no longer taking center stage with adults or with students. The issues that were taking center stage were really not political per se. They were really about who we are. So for example, what race of people is bad or good? Whose quote unquote lives, but people were using the term lifestyles, right, would matter. These aren't political issues, not when you're living it, right? They're personal, they're values. Um, and these conversations are happening in our school. And like many other schools, Sandy Spring Friends School, values demand that we respect all people, that we see the light in everyone, that we understand that not everything is equitable, not everything is equal in our society, and it is our charge to, to do something, if you will, about those, those inequities, those inequalities. And so I hear people say schools shouldn't be political spaces. I think often now, whether they realize it or not, they're, they're really also talking about and schools shouldn't be places that hold values. And that simply isn't something that we're able to do and also fulfill our charge of preparing our students to be world citizens and to quote unquote, let their lives speak. And so all this to say is that I think that we have to really examine what we mean when we say schools shouldn't be political, because in my estimation, it's really been the political discourse that has come to almost like snatch, if you will, ideas that have everything to do with who we are, what our values are, what we care about. And if we allow that to be put in like a no-go political zone, we will not be able to fulfill our vision and we won't be able to serve our students. And so I always challenge that notion. Sure, if, if we don't wanna talk about hedge fund taxes at school, I can live with that. But the vestiges of racism, the impacts of gender discrimination, um, the impacts that this has on family structure, I don't think we can give that up. I'm going back also to Miles' point earlier and, and, and I don't wanna lose it, I wanna actually highlight it. This founding of the public school system in American education, or I should say the United States education, was really founded by Horace Mann on the idea that we would be teaching civic engagement, that, that the reason why we needed, at least one of the main ones, public education that was compulsory was so that every kid could learn how to do their best within and be their best for this American system of democracy. And so on some levels, schools were really founded to teach civic engagement. But Nicole, you're getting to something interesting about rights. And so I'd love for us to take a minute to parse out the difference between human rights, civil rights, and political rights. I feel like this is the group <laughs> that can help tease that apart for some folks who confuse it. 
right? What would, what would be the differences there? And why must we consider those differences? To me, Rodney, they're actually all connected. I, I get how you're saying they're different, but I think if you focus on human rights as a right that everyone deserves, I wish I could show you my classroom, right? I have these posters of human rights everywhere that the kids made. And then from there, we went into actually government rights and how your government impacts you and what do laws do to support your human rights. I was reading an article yesterday about this teacher in Wisconsin who wanted to teach Black Lives Matter. And there was an uproar that she did. And the superintendent came down on her, the school board did. And in that article, they were saying that 81% of teachers want to teach Black Lives Matter and 16% don't. That's school right there, right? And to me, when you're thinking about human rights, when you're thinking about justice, you're thinking about your kids in the classroom. You're thinking about what backgrounds they come into the classroom with, what their home life has been like, what they've experienced with their own identity and their identifiers. And I feel like if you do not do justice to that, you're not doing justice to your kids. When it comes to civil rights, then, I feel like that can back human rights. They, for me, they kind of go hand. I mean, all three, can be, you can make a connection. And with civil rights, you can, you can be teaching that at age three or four. I mean, I just read my daughter, Gracie, wants to be president. She's four and a half. And it talked about the civil rights movement. It talked about afterwards, like, why can't a woman be president? And why are you only seeing white men as presidents, except for Obama, of course? And so I think that you have to make these connections in the classroom, because I do think that kids make more of a connection with themselves. And that is human rights, right? Like, why does it matter? who you love? Why does it matter if you look a certain way? Why does it matter if women still make 33 cents less than a man? And to me, those are all human rights. I'd love to geek out with you all for a moment because this is an area of work that I, I feel really strongly about. Like I know Pinky and Mao do as well in the classroom. But I just want to take us back for a second to the last century when the United Nations was founded. Um, there was this understanding that there were some universal uh, truths about what human beings deserve, right? And that was written, if you will, in uh, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And the Declaration of Human Rights was a um, was real compromise, if you will. I know we talk about the compromises that were made in, in the US Constitution founding, but the compromises um, that were a part of the UN Charter founding, but also then this Universal Declaration of Human Rights are also worth really looking at because it shows this divide and it's the divide that Rodney you're speaking to around how we see human rights, how we see civil rights, how we see political rights. And there was a notion at the time that there were just some basic dignities all people deserved. Um, all people deserved uh, the right to have their voice uh, at least spoken, <laughs> at least allowed to speak, maybe also to be heard. Um, there was a right to life, right? There was a right um, for uh, one to live under a government that didn't purposely try to harm them. And I'm, I'm saying this in particular because there were a lot of conversations about what sort of government did we need to have in order for human rights to be protected? I mention this because there was then this divide after the declaration and we, the world divided itself into two different conventions of what we considered to be the most um, 
prioritized human rights. One's called the International Convention of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and one is, is called the International Convention of Civil and Political Rights. And I mention this because um, the US was like one of the first signatories on the, the Convention for Civil and Political Rights. It was all about government refraining, like refraining from torture, refraining from um, disallowing folks to, to speak out and have their freedom of speech, very much uh, similar to our Bill of Rights. The other one, civil, uh, the, the economic, social, and cultural rights really talked about the right to health the right to have a job, the right to have a home. Um, and so the world almost divided itself into what priorities um, they would have for human rights. I mention this because so often when we think about civic engagement, we think about um, the protest, the speaking out, um, the freedom of assembly, if you will. Um, but also what's a part of human rights when we start to think multiculturally, internationally, is about the, the right to health, the right to, um, to get an education, the right to have a job, the right to live with dignity, not just to live, but to have dignity. And so as we're explaining um, human rights to students, I know that I really enjoy making sure we talk about this full breadth because it then allows them to see their civic engagement a bit more broadly, not just, um, I, you know, I'm going to, to speak out on an issue or I'm gonna sign a petition, but also I'm gonna become a doctor because I wanna make sure that everyone has the right to health. I'm gonna become an architect because I wanna build sustainable housing. Like it, it expands our horizons as to what we think about our, what human rights are, what civil rights are, right? And what political rights are. Um, I think one of the greatest political rights really is to fight for these economic, social and cultural rights. When you get right down to it, like when you look at, and I was a part of this process, when you look at what Black Lives Matter or the Movement for Black Lives has put out regarding what they wanna see um, from the United States, police brutality is one point of, I believe, 11 or 12 at this point. The rest of them are the right to health, the right to economic prosperity, and all of these other things. And so I think from the process of how the United States thinks about um, rights, we've, we've almost gotten lost in just the quote-unquote political side of rights. And as, as Pinky has said and, and Mao has said, it's so important to give our students like a full understanding, a full breadth, if you will, of what's possible and what sort of society we could be. Yeah, you know, I, I wanna add on to that because I think that there is a general kind of misunderstanding of the three for sure. You know, from my kind of history teacher perspective, I often view human rights being the basic necessities, right, that, that often we overlook. So things like, as Nicole, you had said, a right to healthcare, a right to education, a right to, to work. Those are things that we often don't think about. For so long in the news, you know, we, we heard about the people from Flint, Michigan, not have clean drinking water or potable water that they could use, right? That is a deprivation of, of a human right, water. Coming from the history teacher perspective, civil rights being more so to me, those kind of social freedoms and equality and, and equitable experiences, right? We, we know that we should all have a right to education, but when segregation was going on in schools, that was not an equal opportunity for black students, period. So civil rights being that kind of equal opportunity and that equitable experience to, to receive a high quality education, just like what other students were getting 
during the civil rights era. To me, we should all have some sort of involvement and in having a say in the political establishment as well. Being able to participate in the political process, whether we choose to vote and then have the right to vote, you know, when, when we're 18 years old here in the United States, or whether we decide to run for local city council, or maybe be a congressman one day. Political rights allow us to, to, to participate in the process and, and the political establishment as well. Nick Paul, I just wanted to um, let you know that we open up with the UN De Declaration of Human Rights in sixth grade every year. And I tell <laughs> them that the US is the only country that has signed it, but not ratified it. Uproar in the classroom when that happens. And we start right there with that conversation. We start talking about human rights. That's amazing. That's so important. I mean, when you think about 12 year olds, having that understanding and being able to, to say like, this is important. Why haven't we done this? That's so great for our young. I mean, we have adults that are running whole districts right, <laughs> in, in, in counties right now that don't, that don't know that. Right. Imagine if we had a world of Sandy Spring Friends alum running things, it would be pretty amazing. So interesting because this moment we're speaking in right now has such a crossover between human rights, civil rights and political rights, whether we're talking about the election, whether we're talking about the pandemic and how that's playing out, whether we're talking about this racial unrest and civil unrest in our country. And so I'm glad you've helped us to tease it apart. And just to reiterate what y'all are saying, I'm, I'm thinking about it through the thread of American history and slavery where human rights would be, right? The right not to be a slave. We believe that's universal. There should be no one on the planet who is enslaved by another person, right? And so when slavery ended, we solved that issue of human rights, but they still didn't have political rights, which under what Mao is saying, the right to vote. That's a political right. Black men and eventually Black women and women themselves got the right to vote, but they were still missing, according to what y'all are saying, civil rights, which is how am I treated when I'm out in this country doing my everyday business, right? And those three things are often intertwined and interconnected, but important to tease out, especially for young people, just to your point, Pinky, about where you start to sparse out with the sixth grader Here's this thing that we all can agree to, and yet our nation didn't sign it. And who is the arbiter of these rights? And that's where you get civic engagement and why it's so important in the current context. And thinking about a kindergartner needs to understand that as well as <laughs> a 12th grader. And that kids are all about their rights, right? The developmental age of a kid is all about what's appropriate and what's fair to me and what can I do and what can I do and what can you tell me to do versus what can I decide to do for myself? And that's how they build their development all the way up. So I'm so excited that we're having this conversation. It's making me think too about the way we teach history. And so in honor of this conversation, I'm wearing this Alexander Hamilton from the Broadway show Hamilton t-shirt <laughs> because it reminds us of how do we tell the same story a different way to highlight different inequities and different issues of rights that were embedded in the traditional notions of just this country and right, globally the way we tell the narrative and the arc of humanity. As teachers and educators, what do you think is the role of a school in reshaping the way we even teach history 
and the evolution of rights in this, in this country and the world? Why is it important that we examine how we teach even before we get to the what do we do with what we know? I think, especially in a history classroom, it's incredibly important that we are looking at history from multiple identities and multiple perspectives. That That is incredibly important. You know, historically, the U.S. education system, and I've certainly been guilty of this myself, especially early on in my teaching career, the, the concept of curriculum violence and kind of how we only highlight certain things because that's what curriculum has said or, you know, that's what has been taught and that's how it's been taught historically. So only teaching slavery in one way or teaching about African-American history in one way and not looking at it from another perspective. And I think that we really need to consider the amount of harm that can be done to, to students by only looking at it from one perspective or one point of view. So instead of teaching just solely, let's say, slavery and saying, oh, this is African-American history. It's like, well, after the Reconstruction era, you actually saw some of the highest rates of Black political officials at the local, state, and federal level at rates that we don't even really see today. So I think paying attention to how we are structuring curriculum and kind of overhauling it to an extent. I think the other thing too, and, and this is going to sound kind of odd for those that aren't familiar with the term, but moral reframing and the idea of we have a moral empathy gap, I think just naturally as as humans, because we come from all different walks of life because of our different you know identities, so on and so forth. And I think it's really important for us to kind of morally reframe as teachers, as educators and help our students to try to morally reframe as well. So looking at issues um, from our audience's moral underpinnings and values and not just ours. That's not an easy thing to do by any means, but it starts with us to understand where our moral values and, and convictions are and why we hold certain views, but also seek to understand the others as well and understand that when we are trying to engage in scholarly debate and discourse, the idea of we should be seeking to understand and persuade based on our audience's moral underpinnings and values. I really agree with that, Mel. Thank you for sharing that. I also think going back to textbooks, it's really important to know that you can't be working with the same curriculum or textbook every single year. It just doesn't work that way. Teachers should be lifelong learners, just like our students. And we should constantly be researching and talking to other schools and teachers to say, you know, how are you teaching history? What's changing? And so, for example, this year, Terrell and I decided the way we want to teach slavery is through the 1619 Project. And we completely changed our curriculum. We wrote a letter to the parents saying, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to try to build a safe and inclusive space online. You can imagine a really hard subject like slavery, teaching it over a screen when you really can't tell your kids are feeling is quite challenging. But to use this curriculum that has been politicized across the country, and we talked about that with our kids, we said, you know, there's been funding being threatened. There's representatives that don't want it. But guess what? At Sandy Spring Friends School, we're going to teach this to you. And we want to encourage this conversation to be open. And I think that if we learn to change our curriculum every year, every two years, and we use something new, that's really empowering. And we can't keep using the same books and textbooks. So Pinky, when you were taking on the 1619 Project, 
and I was watching it a little bit from afar, but I, I read the letter that was going to go out to parents, and y'all said, take a look before it goes out, and just so that you know, and I could sense, but correct me if I'm wrong, there was a little bit of nervousness or caution from the two of you as you took that on. Where did that nervousness come from? As you're describing it, it sounds like exactly the right thing to be doing in the classroom, and yet, where was your apprehension coming from? It was mainly because we were online. We want to be able to see our students and on a screen, it's hard to see them that way. It's hard to read how parents will feel about us teaching slavery. If they come across the screen and every so often they may, and they hear us saying something, are they going to be okay with that? You know, we're not just teaching to the students anymore. We have a broader audience and we want to do justice to this topic. And this is the first time we're reading this curriculum as we're teaching it. It's all very new. And so as teachers, you take that on and you want to make sure you're doing justice for your students. And we want to make sure that we're building a space that's safe and inclusive for our kids. And so we started off with the students. We've had them private chat us and saying, we're about to go into this curriculum. How are you feeling? And I screenshotted their answers. And I said, I'm going to share this with you when we're done. And then mm. last week, we said, what if we started history in the year 1619 versus 1776? What do you think? And their answers were so empowering. We were so nervous because we didn't know what we were going into. And now that we're in it, I feel so you know, blessed with our students that they're just being really open and amazing via a screen and that they want this. They want to learn. I just wanted to add, first of all, how excited I am about what you all are doing, what Pinky and Terrell are up to. And I think it's so important. I think a part of what you all are undertaking is a paradigm shift. And even though we know that this country has been made up of people of many different races and ethnicities, for centuries, we have quote unquote, satisfied or not willing to have a whole uprising over how our history is taught. We've been okay with some folks because of their race and gender, specifically white men being the stars, if you will, the leading actors in the American play, if you will, and the rest of us having bit parts and being supporting characters. And with 1619 and so many other things that you all are doing, you are flipping that around. And so as I'm hearing you talk about like in real time, as people are hearing this, we're going to hear some decentering of particular narratives that maybe parents were taught or have just kind of assumed are the way things are. We're going to hear that decentering. We're going to be recentering other ideas. And some of those ideas might be uncomfortable even though they're appropriate. And so I really appreciate what you're saying around wanting to center the students, making sure that they're taken care of, but also understanding that this is something that folks are going to have to acclimate to because it really is about what's best for our students. And we know that telling this history from a multicultural, multiracial, gender fluid perspective is what our students are going to need living in this, in this world, if you will, as it is now, and not what we were teaching 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. Mm. Y'all are highlighting that you can't teach civic engagement well without a foundation in social emotional learning and without attending to that in the classroom, that you have to have a background in inclusive pedagogy and multicultural education and seeing things from multiple perspectives. You can't just jump in <laughs> and start teaching civic engagement. It's one of the most complicated things to teach. And in part because as in every classroom, but especially in a, a classroom in which civic engagement is on the table, 
the subjectivity of the teacher and the, the political nature of the teacher, right? The human nature of the teacher, the teacher's connection to civil rights, the teacher's identities are all in this in a way that it may not necessarily come into play in other conversations. And so it's making me think about, you know, as an educator, and I know we are videotaping this, so I'm gonna put this on, folks won't be able to see it, but I wanna ask you this question as I put on this mask, if I was to teach my class this way, what would I need to think about as an educator? I mean, I see George Floyd right in center. And that, that's, a, that's the conversation piece. Your mask is a conversation piece of who do you see? What do they represent? How are they represented in society today? Do you know their names? And if not, should we learn their names? And also even a conversation about why a statement that the lives of black people matter, just matter. <laughs> like there's so many other words that are so much more powerful than matter, but just that they matter has drawn all of this ire. Because if we just go back to the words, words aren't all that controversial or shouldn't be, that should be okay. So even being able to have a conversation, if a student were to say like, why are you wearing that mask? What kind of conversation could we have about what the words mean? And then what's been attached or assumed about the words that maybe we need to think about. And I think definitely with, with a mask like that, we often need to consider the thought minority in the classroom as well. Those that don't necessarily agree or see things the same way that we do. But I view that as an opportunity to engage and, and really focus on the skills-based learning, not even content at that point, the skills-based learning of how do we engage in civil discourse, right? In a respectful manner, one that is fact-based, one that is evidence-based. That's part of our job too, to, to, to really build up the skill of argumentation. And I view that as an opportunity you know, to do so and to kind of bridge that moral empathy gap as well. So the mask itself has become politicized, whether you're wearing it or not wearing it, whether it's an issue of human rights, civil rights, or political rights to the wear the mask or determine if you're going to wear it. And then the mask also has messaging that people are layering on top of it, right? It's become a conversation piece. And I'm thinking about the role of the educator in using, showcasing, discussing their own political thoughts, political orientations, their own belief systems in these conversations around civic engagement. What do y'all think about that? What's the role of the teacher as a human being in the room with a perspective? And when is that shared? And what are the repercussions and the benefits of a teacher being fully human in the classroom? Feels like a trick question, Rodney. <laughs> well, in part because, I mean, to keep it real, for some of us, our very being, like our very leadership in a classroom, for some people is considered political because our lives are considered political. Because the, again, going back to the, this more broad, expansive notion of what political is, for some folks, being a Black woman is political. That, that is inherently political. My views, my thoughts, my experiences could be seen by some as political. I don't see them that way. I see them as just trying to get through life like everyone else, trying to raise my kids, trying to make sure there's food on the table, all of those things. I don't see that as political. But for some folks, 
the way that they view politics is through this notion that different identities, if you will, inherently bring up discomfort, inherently bring up issues of opinion. I saw this cartoon this morning that actually said, you know, we can disagree on whether or not we like romantic comedies or sci-fi. That's agreeing to disagree, right? But we can't agree to disagree on racism. For some folks, they feel like talking about racism is political. And so as a teacher in a classroom, we do bring our identities with us to try to somehow shut those out or put those aside has, and we know research shows both adults and students, it has a major impact. It has a cognitive impact. It has an emotional impact. And so I think it's important for teachers to be able to bring themselves fully into the classroom. And it's important for students to be able to do so as well. So we have students coming in of varying identities, of varying experiences. And as teachers, we have to be prepared to absolutely bring our whole selves into the classroom and also make sure that it is a space where our students can bring their whole selves as well. And sometimes there can be some trickiness there. Sometimes we do have to assert that a particular identity or identities has to be represented and and that does take priority um, and has to be represented in, in in a healthy way, right? And that needs to take priority over someone's quote unquote opinion. Like that's, that's a real thing that does happen in classrooms, but it, it's not something that's stagnant. We're not going to be able to check the box on it. We're going to, no matter what the identity of the teachers and the students is, we're going to have to be ready to do that dance and to be prepared in the moment to meet each other's needs, to understand what our values are as a school. I mean, that's another thing too. We have to live up to the values that we speak about. And so that also has an impact in the classroom. And I think it's really important for teachers to be mindful. One of the things I've been talking with Sandy Spring Friends teachers about is, you know, there's no throwaway lines. We, we want to be really intentional about how we have these conversations. Like Mao's saying, there may be a quote unquote minority point of view that may completely fly in the face of the values of the school, or it might, it might not match up with the values of the teacher. Um, and yet still, it's important that we facilitate safe space in the best ways we know how. So it's making me think about when we sent out our guidelines on civic engagement, which went out last week, And it was our attempt to give some norms for engagement, ways in which we're gonna have these pithy and and layered conversations, and also some things that we were not gonna do. And and in that document, we struck the difference between a political statement, if you will, or, or a statement about civil or human rights and a statement that demeans, devalues, or dehumanizes other people. And we said, one statement is in and one statement is definitely out. So I'm thinking about back to this Black Lives Matter face mask that I put on. And if I'm an educator and I put that on, we have that discussion that Pinky's talking about. And then the next day, one of my students comes in with an All Lives Matter face mask. Is that different? What do I do in that situation? So I've had an experience like that. It was when Trump wanted to build the wall, was talking about it four years ago. I remember the student came in in the morning screaming, let's build the wall, let's build the wall. And it was 8.15 in the morning. And I stopped my class and I said, let's sit down and have a discussion. I didn't voice my personal opinion because I don't think that's my job. It was more of, let's sit down. You know, someone has just come in screaming something. (laughs) Let's sit down and have a discussion. (laughs) And so we sat and the class got really serious. I think the kids can often tell your tone also switches when you say, okay, we're going to have a discussion. (laughs) And they all sat 
and they were quiet. And I said, let's talk about this. What does this mean to you? Hands went up. And I said, and why do you think people have different opinions? Hands went up. And I provided the space for us to discuss, but I never gave my personal opinion. And in the end, the students collectively came to a decision. It was pretty remarkable. And they spoke to that one student, right, that minority who felt differently but it was done in a way because I was there where it was quite civil. It was respectful and the volume was lowered, right? It was, there's no yelling, there's no finger pointing. And I feel like when that comes into our classroom, we have to stop what we're doing and say, let's have a discussion. Mm. What does this mean? How do you feel? Can we put judgment aside for one second and just listen to another? And hopefully, Rodney, it doesn't always work this way, but hopefully there is some kind of conclusion at the end of that discussion. And I, I find that really challenging because there's an assumption that because we're at a Quaker school, we all think the same way and, and we don't, right? And so how do we build space for those different opinions? And we talk a lot about Quaker values, which is certainly in line with civic engagement, but Pinky, you're getting at Quaker process which even Quaker process is founded in a means of civic engagement that leaves the group whole and leaves every voice heard. And there's a difference between being heard, right? And then being acted upon. You may hear everything that I'm saying and choose to go a different way with your actions, but it's the hearing of each other that we center and, and, and it's the, the group consensus, right? Or, or unity model of Quaker decision-making that really was highlighted in this moment that you're talking about, that everybody's gonna have their individual way that they want it done. And at the end, in this classroom, we're gonna find a communal way that we would like it done. Really powerful, and I think unique to our school. You know, there are lots of Quaker schools out there, so that part's not unique, but the way in which Quaker process seeps into our educational pedagogy is really powerful. So thank you for highlighting, highlighting that. As we're wrapping up this conversation, I mean, just so much <laughs> to unpack and, and so much to talk about with this, especially one week away from um, a, a very controversial election in which civil rights, human rights, political rights, civic engagement are all mixed up in here. And so I guess I'd ask as my final question, what's the role of a school in any national election, and especially in one as critical as this one? So I think I can say this fairly succinctly. The role of the school is to ensure that we do our part to make sure the social and emotional needs are met of our community. That might mean that come the day after the election, some folks are really sad and we need to be able to hold space for that. It might mean that some folks are elated. We have to hold space for that too. There might be just this feeling of not knowing. That's a real possibility this time around that there might just not be um, the information. And so people may feel frustrated or despondent or um, hopeful. We need to be able to hold space for that and to hold space for the conversations. And the beautiful thing about it is in a school, not only can you have conversations, but there is a practice to ensure that there's an evidence-based approach in that conversation, that we can do research, that we can study, that we don't just have to talk, we can read together, we can write together, we can really grapple. And so I think that what a different country we would be 
if all schools approached that way, that we were really going to grapple, we were really going to deal with these issues and hold the space for each member of the community to be who they are. I think, yes, from the socio-emotional uh, perspective, especially hold, holding the space and, and that safe space, I think from, from the educational perspective, it's our duty to, to kind of teach students how to be informed, right? How to be informed and whatever side of any political spectrum they fall on, it's are they informed about their decisions? Are they informed about their arguments? What are the facts and evidence that they are using to back up their perspectives and, and point of views? It's not our duty to indoctrinate a student one way or the other, you know, left or right, as long as, you know, I feel like I have done my job as, you know, as a teacher, if they can make an informed decision based on solid facts and evidence. Yeah, I agree with both Mel and Nicole. I think the first job, like they both said, is building a safe space. That has to be the most important to begin with. And after that is established, for my age level students, for sixth and seventh graders, I think it's teaching them to ask questions. There's a lot going on right now. What are your questions? How do you find those answers? How do you listen to people? I think listening is a, is a really valuable skill that I'm, I'm grateful that we do that a lot at this Quaker school. And then my job is to conduct those meetings, right? Or those sessions and make room and space for that, but to not give my political opinion, to not say, well, let me wrap this up with how I feel everyone, right? I, I, that's not my job ever, but to leave it on the kids. And at the end say, you know, if you're not satisfied by this, if you feel like your question is not answered, or if you have more, I encourage you to keep digging. And I always tell my um, students, always question your history teacher. We are not the final word. No, I so appreciate all of that and this whole conversation. And I, I, in the back of my mind, the whole time I've been thinking about our three-year-olds, right? The youngest of our kids on this campus and, and even earlier than that, but certainly by that point, we're already teaching kids civic engagement and they're already trying to understand all these nuanced points we've been talking about. And it starts with phrases like, that's not fair. I don't want to. Why do I have to? You can't tell me, <laughs> right? When I'm at home, I can. And so this idea of school being one of the first places that kids engage in civic engagement and figure out what's the difference between what I want to do and what I can do, what I can do at home versus what I can do in this communal classroom. And when I'm upset about something or have an issue with something, who do I talk to and how do I get my voice heard? That starts as early as our very first kiddos at three years old. And we just continue to scaffold it all the way up. And so thank you for sharing this conversation with me. I'm walking away thinking about civil rights, human rights, political rights, and most importantly, the ways in which they must show up in education. And as we've been saying, they are in fact the purpose. <laughs> it's the reason schools exist is to teach these very things so thank you for that continue to do what you do i love the way y'all let your lives speak and um, i hope some folks really got something out of the conversation today thank you thank you thank you Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories Podcast.